Welcome to episode 63 of The Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. My guest today is the documentary photographer Joseph Michael Lopez, and joining me on this show as a guest co-host was Nomi Ellenson, who you got to know in episode 61. So for those of you who are wondering whatever happened to Kai on the show, um, my plan for the show was always to have different guest co-hosts so I could bring in different voices and people with different perspectives. Uh, Kai was just always so good and so prepared, uh, he just became a regular co-host. But rest assured, we are still very good friends, and Kai is always welcome back on the show when he wants to bring someone on. But for those of you who do want to keep up with what Kai is up to, uh, because he is a very active photographer, a very hard worker, and an avid cyclist, you can see his work at Kai McPhoto, and that's with an F, not a PH, on Instagram. So that's Kai McPhoto. Follow him. See what he's doing. Say hello. Also, Kai will be showing his work at my JKC Gallery in Trenton this fall, and I'll certainly tell you about that. Which brings me to the gallery. Uh, this week, I've been working on hanging Tony Chirinos's show called Fighting Cocks, which is all about the culture of cockfighting in San Andres, Colombia. That show opens on March 6th. Uh, the reception will be on March 21st when Tony can fly in. And of course, you can check out the website, thephotoshow.org, for more details on that. So again, today's guest is Joseph Michael Lopez, and Nomi and I had a really fascinating conversation with him about his start as a filmmaker with Bruce Weber and how that led him on a path to becoming a self-taught photographer. But what will keep coming back in our conversation is how the story of Joseph's mother fleeing Cuba really helped shape his moral compass and the kind of work that he's interested in making. We also talk about the work he did for the Museum of the City of New York for its New York at its core Future City Lab. And he was recently on the cover of the Leica M magazine. Uh, also, I think he's in the middle of a workshop for the Penumbra Foundation. And he'll be starting another workshop on street photography with the photographer Gus Powell for the Leica Academy. And that is still open. And if you go to josephmlopez.com, which will be linked uh, in this show, you can find out more about that. Uh, so he's having a, a lot of great successes lately. And uh, again, we just had a really nice conversation. So enjoy the show, everyone. And we will talk soon. So but Nomi yes, and we, Joseph are uh, catching up because they haven't seen each other in a are while. Are we recording? We are. Hello, <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> cool. You are the MFA student with the very cool glasses. Uh, yes, you, you, had, you have always worn cool glasses. You, that well, is true. Yeah. They, they, these frames are still like, it's, I don't know. They're like the same frames I've had since 99, 98. Don't you have another set? A little no, more. I mean, Orange or red nope, or something? This is it. Oh. They're and they're like just old, you know, I guess mm -hmm. you would use the word vintage frames <laughs> from the sixties. Little they're tortoise like, shell design, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, uh, they're they're actually look at this. They're about, Oh, they're breaking. They're breaking. Uh oh, this could be the end of an era. Yeah. And I'm kind of like not wanting to let go of these frames. Oh, get maybe get them fixed. Yeah, yeah I gotta figure that out. <laughs> So, you know, whenever uh, I, I watched the, um, the video piece from the Museum of City of New York. Yeah. Um, and I've read your bio and I nice. read one or two interviews. And one of the things you always start with is the story about your mother because yeah. it's so, so much a foundation of your life and what you do. Yeah. Uh, and so your mother escaped Cuba. Yeah. So, yeah, my family's from Sinfuegos, which is the south side um, of the island, you know, closer to the equator. And, um, yeah, I mean, I grew, I was very close to my mother and my grandmother, my mother's mother. And I, you know, that's like home to me. And that, that, those relationships and my, my understanding of my mom and what she left behind and that personal, um, history and narrative is, uh, kind of embodied in, in my own, uh, navigation as, 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 as a man and, I mean, you talk about civil liberties and 
not in these words, but social justice, right? Yeah. When you I talk mean, about the, your mom. The, well, I mean, that comes from the obvious, or maybe not so obvious story that most Cubans face to this day, which is the lack of civil liberties. I mean, and there's like no real place within that island to kind of really be autonomous and, and, and express yourself and actually be yourself. You kind of always have to live, you're always kind of in constant paranoia or fear, or you have to like double check who's behind you to the side right before you say anything. So there's always this kind of like, and I grew up with that, like that's been transferred down to me, <laughs> to hmm. me, because as I was like a, a young boy at the, you know, at the table and my grandfather was at the end of it, he was like the like, supreme father figure, like no one question him like like he when he's he was also very tall so a real patriarch yeah total patriarch and a beautiful man i mean i you know i just wish you know he died like the timing of my kind of maturity and the way he left this physical world it really makes me sad because i wasn't ready to kind of like really engage him in the way that i am now Mm -hmm. and it's like there's like things that I wish I had more clarity about that he was in, you know, he's a part of, and you know, he was the one that like created the bridge out of Cuba. He literally did create an escape plan. (laughs) And, you know, he was also a political prisoner. I mean, I was in Cuba in the beginning of last year. Uh, I recently got married. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful Rachel. And um, I'm excited to say that she's finally coming home Saturday night. From where? She's in Chicago. Not to get Yeah, we'll come back. We'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So back to like going to Cuba in the beginning of 2017. Before we actually do that. Yeah. So did your grandparents and parents all come together? All escape together? So yeah. So no. no, Well, actually, my mother uh, arrived to Miami with my grandmother and my grandfather. Now her two sisters, my aunts. They they left at different times because of all kinds of other stuff that was going on. So, yeah, my mom and my grandparents arrived in Miami. They spent, like, I think two days at the Freedom Tower. And then we had kind of... This was in 67? 67. And then they went from there, mind you, you know, warm-blooded, equatorial, <laughs> you know, tropical. Like, my mom's, I think she was, like, 22 when she arrived and uh, and went straight to, like, Washington Heights, which is like bizarre. <laughs> not tropical. Yeah, not tropical. <laughs> Different culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. What fascinates me is just thinking about like what that was like. Well, what, I mean, were we talking about rafts and boats or did they actually no, they got get out plane. on a plane? They got no okay. plane. Yeah, they got yeah. no plane. But they were really up against the wall there. I mean, you know, not to jump into another kind of tangent or kind of direction of, within the story. But <laughs> like I was just recently in Miami teaching for the semester and so I spent a lot of time with my mom and I actually started photographing her and in the process of me exploring this new time with her with my camera I found out I I, I, like things surfaced and the first thing she said to me and she had like barely she doesn't have any patience anymore for me to kind of like hang out and point the camera Oh, and, and take okay. pictures, and then and she's then over she, it. She's kind of like, all right, like she wants to be almost depicted in a different kind of skin. She's she wants a beauty shoot or something, and I'm like, oh, she's she, she's over <laughs> you doing your work, and, right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, this is you know, I'm just photographing what's happening in front of us, like. And then sometimes, so what I'm getting to is like, sometimes I get really collaborative, and I'm like, all right, we're. I'm not I'm not literally photographing what happens. I'm actually constructing it like I'm directing it. And um, so I would move her, say, into a more interesting lighting kind of space. And I would lightly just kind of guide her or position her shoulders. Mind you, she broke both of her shoulders last year and she was recovering from one shoulder injury or breaking her shoulder. The day I arrived on August 18th, before she even opened the door, she fell at my arrival and she broke another shoulder. Aye. But anyways, where I'm getting to is like, I was positioned here to, you know, to kind of do like a little portrait session or, you know, just yeah. 
kind of play with her with my camera, you know, just like trying to make a picture with, with my mom. And, and she's like, no me toques. And I'm like, and I laughed. And she's like, don't touch me in Spanish. But like in that way where you know, like, you know, it's your mom. You're like, you know, you're not touching your mom inappropriately. You're like kind of just like positioning her so you could frame, you know, so you could kind of take a picture, right? The, the way you think is fit for yourself or whatever, you know, whatever you're. So then that opened up a whole like, like, I don't know. It was like a watershed moment that kind of connects to like my trip to Cuba, which was essentially kind of like a honeymoon, but, you know, it's hard. I don't even know what a honeymoon is because if I bring my camera with me, it's like... Did you go on a honeymoon? Well, we tried, <laughs> and we had a good time, but it's like I was really conflicted about it because I just wanted to photograph. Yeah. And then it was just kind of like, okay... You're married now. You're going to have to learn how to vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was an adjustment for me. We still have to learn. I mean, I'm, it's yes. like constantly adjusting. Part of what she loves about you yeah. and also... <laughs> Yeah, you have to work on. Yeah, I mean, we're both we're both documentary artists, photographers, mm-hmm. and filmmakers. So, and our kind of our practice doesn't stop. It kind of envelops our whole. It's twenty four hours a day. What's Rachel's last name? Uh, it's Rachel Elizabeth Seed. Okay. So g- going back to the story in Cuba, so I found out a lot of things about my family that I didn't know until like the last year. So back to like photographing my mom in Miami last year, into last year, I triggered her by touching her like... Um, her shoulders. Her, it's her, I guess the clavicle here? Collarbone. Collarbone, mm-hmm. is it? Collarbone area. And it's just because I was like straightening her up. She was kind of like this, you know? Not that you can see that everyone out there. Yes, it was, like it was a stiff movement yeah. left to right. It yes. triggered her. It triggered her. And she was like... And then all of a sudden she told me like, Los Verdes would show up at the house... And they would like, the first thing they would do, she would be like the first youngest one that'd go to the door and the muzzle or the end of the, like the, the, the rifle would be totally kind of like pointed into her chest. And then she would be pushed into the house and they would be like asking where, you know, where's the man in the house? And for some reason she experienced that more than a couple times. And it was pretty traumatizing to the point to where if you were to like touch her, like here, the memory, you know, it's just like, it's like all of a sudden oscillating. And she's like, but it was kind of, a, it was a gift and a kind of like, man, it was, it was heavy for her to kind of like let that out, you know? You and hadn't known that before. No, I hadn't known that. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like, so I'm getting more and more kind of like pieces that I'm putting together as to like what happened in Sinfuegos, like prior to the revolution in my family and you know, the house they lived in, and I actually went back to the house. I mean, I, I, I'll i say this. Like, I should have been shooting a docu- like a moving image documentary last time I was there mm. with sound and the whole thing because I was just kind of like the stuff that I was hearing, it's like, it just doesn't translate to, like, one picture, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Are you still thinking of doing that? Yeah, I'm always thinking about doing that. You know, I'm, like, wrapped up with my wife's documentary project and... Yeah, and I, I mean, I have all these ideas and kind of impulses that I kind of haven't really acted, like I haven't like really walked through and executed that are kind of percolating. And they're all like filmmaking kind of questions and you know, things I have to like point to and things I want to say and things I want to explore that I think are like you can't do it with one picture. You can't do it with one frame. And I mean, funny enough, if we go right back to where I started... The reason why I picked up a camera from the beginning was because I wanted to be a, a, a filmmaker, you know? Well, you worked with Bruce Weber early on. Yeah, yeah. Bruce was, man, he was fundamental in kind of like kind of shaping my way, you know? I arrived in New York because of Bruce, you know? He brought me in on a job and he put me up in a hotel for like almost two months. And I was just kind of like showing up and assisting him. You were a camera operator? Or? Well, I was an assistant. Mm. At, at first, I was just kind of a naive, hungry, passionate, you know, artist, totally greenhorned. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The way I met Bruce is like, it's, it's my brother. I was photographing my brother in 97. And he was just started kind of like modeling and stuff. And his agent started using the pictures that 
I was making with the camera that I bought from a pawn shop. And the reason why I went to a pawn shop to buy a camera is because at the time I was taking these vocational motion picture technical... Uh, I was in school for a second in Central Florida learning <laughs> mo- motion picture you know, filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and this is like pre-ones and zeros explosion of, you know, social... Well, what we know now is like our culture. I mean, that was such a different time. And um, no social media, no digital photography. Yeah, I mean, maybe the internet was just surfacing, you know, and it was just like really kind maybe of, some AOL instant messaging. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, but I guess everything was more analog, is what I'm what, suggesting. So back to like these. Oh, so I bought this camera, and I just thought the whole logic behind this was like, okay, so if I want to be a filmmaker. And there's all these things I need to get out of me, like out of my system. And I thought like that the way I'm going to kind of work this through is like by saying it. And I, and I can make a film. Well, I don't know what that film is yet. But I came to a screeching halt and I was like, wait, wait, wait. How the hell am I going to like figure out 24 frames a second when I don't even know like one frame? So I stepped back, you know, and I was working with sound and 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 analog motion picture cameras and reel-to-reel, uh, uh, you know, uh, sound recording. What's the the crazy sound recorder, analog sound recorder? The machine? Yeah, the, the machine. But anyways, I was like, uh, I was like all of a sudden teaching myself how to like shoot film and, and I was using what little money I had on processing film and I was photographing my brother and my daily kind of experiences. And that really got like addictive for me. I just loved having this tool, this camera. And it was a Canon AE-1. So so I started photographing my brother and his agent started using the pictures that I was like making of his. And at one point I was like, I kind of have to start making money. Like I have to find a job. And I got kind of friendly with his agent and he's like, well, you, you know, I've I can uh, introduce you to someone. I think you would be, I think, you know, it might be a good fit, you know. What agency was it, out of curiosity? It was, uh, well, my brother was with Boss back then, Boss Models, which was like a kind of a big agency for male models at the time. Mind you, I had no idea, like, this world and, like, I was just really interested in, like, photography and filmmaking, and that's all I wanted. I kind of wanted to make a life of it, but I had no idea of, like, what that was so this guy sets me up with like literally i showed up at bruce weber's house hmm. one afternoon and i didn't really know who he was and we sat and talked for like i i guess it felt like two hours or something and then he offered me like an opportunity he literally asked me he's like what do you want to do and i'm like i just want to take photographs and make <laughs> films and he's go, he's like well you could work for me and how does that sound? And then he kind of went, I remember him going into like really specific details about the way things kind of somewhat happened there. It was kind of all overwhelming because I was like, oh my God, like, <laughs> what it like, all right, so I have to show up one afternoon and gave me a number to call, which was one of his first assistants to kind of make that, um, you know, to confirm that, that I was going, you know, showing up for this gig. I remember showing up, man, and it was just at the time, I was just like floored. I was like, there's this one guy photographing these beautiful subjects in this kind of like canopy where there's all this light being filled in to the subject. And then there's this arrangement that was almost kind of poetic and rigorous of all these guys like handing cameras to each other. And then there was one dude who was just constantly loading film. with, it. And it was a Pentax 6-7. Hmm. And it was like this huge thing. And I was like... I looked at that camera and I was like, how the, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's like a huge 35 millimeter looking thing. What and a great opportunity, man. You, like, yeah, I mean, I had no idea. That's how it happens. Yeah, yeah. Right I had place, no, right time. Yeah, I mean, I was like really grateful. Do you remember the work that, that Bruce was Bruce, doing that day? Th- th- yeah, the work that he was doing that day? Yeah, I think he was actually shooting a Ralph Lauren lifestyle home portrait of some models in this kind of like resort on the beach in Miami. And uh, long behold, like what happened was, is I was just kind of being introduced to his team, his assistants. And uh, and then all of a sudden they, they let me hold a camera and I was just like, huh. I was like, whoa. 
And that's how it kind of started. Like, I mean, at least that was like the first day or the second day. And then you end up working with him on a film. Yeah. And then after many months of kind of like bobbing and weaving and, and, and kind of like, because it, it was pretty competitive to stay looped in with it. It was like, at the time, there was like six assistants. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what six assistants around one person is? <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, I think of that and I'm just like, it's like beautifully insane. It was like a really well-oiled machine and everybody had a specific task or that's, ability. That's the only way it could work, right? Yeah. Where am I going with this? So, wait, well... Where wait. you started? Yeah, I mean, like, like, man, I totally adore Bruce. Like, I think he's the most talented, loving, obsessed photographer. And, man, he's an amazing filmmaker. Well, that, that's actually where... Where I wanted to go next because you do talk a lot and you just did about yeah. your mother about lighting and the stage and the scene and the cinematography and is that where you got your influence in the kind of photographs you make and in the the video from the Museum of the City of New York you talk about light as an element of drama I think yeah or it's like a character mm-hmm. like I mean literally at this point in time like if the light isn't right like I'm not even like I'm making a picture the light has to have some kind of quality that amplifies either a person's face or the space or creates or suggests some kind of narrative or, or some kind of drama. Like the light is usually what attracts me first and then it's the body and then it's the human being and it's that condition of being alive, you know, that really, that's what I'm really curious about and concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm completely like, drawing from the history and the devices of cinematography and filmmaking from, you know, 20th century. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like that I'm most comfortable kind of talking about photography in relation to that because that's kind of like, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just love filmmaking and I, I'm just kind of a documentary, I don't want to say junkie, but I'm just yeah. totally into like, documentary practice and documentary approach and but, and you are um almost completely self-taught up to the point where you go to graduate school right and yeah and so when when was it that you know this sort of street photography style that you have so we're going to go back it? to bruce again because okay. it's really pivotal what happened with what my experience like all right so i worked with bruce for almost like three years and Man, he's got an amazing photography collection. And then I got involved in shooting one of his films where really, literally I was just taking his motion picture cameras from his closet and learning how to load them and, and, and running tests to make sure that they're running right to prep them for commercial shoots. And then that turned into something where I started like doing these tests and showing him how what I was doing. And he was just giving me more and more opportunity to kind of like exercise that curiosity and he obviously knew I think you know what I think Bruce really was kind of wanting me to kind of go more into the cinematography route Mm. but there was a part of me that was kind of a little bit um difficult (laughs) in accepting um any authority Mm. or any kind of guidance and I think that relates to like having a really complicated past in relation to my father so, yeah, so what happened was is Bruce gave me Danny Lyons' Knaves of Heart one Christmas. And that book really just, it was like a shift, like, like a light bulb went on. And I had started questioning, like, what the hell am I doing there? Because I felt like... As I, an assistant? Yeah, just as like, like how, like, this isn't really me. And I felt like I was getting more and more... I was getting more and more deeply involved in some th- in things that I didn't really believe in, you know. So, so when he gave me this book and I read it, and I was just like, "Wow!" Like, I just kind of wanted to jump out of my skin. I just wanted to go and s- I wanted to know who the fuck I was, you know. I wanted to go out and discover the world and, and and be not be in this kind of little cocoon and bubble of like amazingness. Actually, I mean, it's you know to be working with Bruce and facilitating and being a part of that crew. Dude, it's like, it was everything. You know, I just had lunch with a, a dear friend of mine, Theo Stanley, who's uh, who used to help me when I was shooting motion picture with Bruce, and now Theo's got an amazing, um, you know, business in the in the 
motion picture industry, you know, and, um, and he's still a friend, a dear friend to this day, you know. But yeah, so what I'm getting to is Bruce gave me this book and I was just like, I got to get out of here. It kind of provoked an existential crisis in me, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could see it, it, it must have felt pretty easy to show up to work every day in a sense that I'm working with this great person and I know what I'm doing and I have this role and I'm really good at it. And it takes a lot to force yourself to say, to leave something like that behind. There's a real security in that as well. You know, it's funny you say that because we're talking about security and it's like photography is so crazy. There's like nothing, nothing secure about doing this thing that we do. And I feel like the more and more I grow forward, the less and less secure anything is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was really kind of actually hard for me to, to draw the line and and, and say, L- listen, I, I got to go. And I left in the spring of 2000. Now that book, Naza Heart, ended up being kind of like my own little like passport of curiosity to kind of then eventually befriend Danny and actually work with Danny. And da- Danny was like a, f- like, a mentor for one second until you know you couldn't you know you couldn't just be with Danny anymore he's just very difficult but um but he had a huge impact on me and 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 I learned through practice I mean I just started what 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 I shared about like what I did prior to coming to New York and like when I was like studying cinematography and sound recording with Anagra that's it the Nagra. Oh, that was the machine? Yeah, the machine. Uh, you know, it's like reel-to-reel. Mm-hmm. And it's um, amazing sound recorder, as opposed to, like, we're recording on digital, right? Oh, yeah. It's yeah, all digital. It's like all. But, uh, <laughs> of course. And um, Oh, my God. I'm just imagining what this show would be like if I was doing reel-to-reel. But how radical. <laughs> A lot me, more time. Yeah, let me spend another uh, 20 hours editing. <laughs> right. Um where am I going with this? Because I lost, like, I'm like thinking <laughs> I think about so many things. it's interesting about, um, like, when you're assisting, because I've assisted some commercial photographers, yeah. fashion photographers. You know, you're helping facilitate someone else's visual agenda. Yeah. And how they see things. And it helps you figure out your own, but your work. It's interesting you started in fashion because completely yeah. you're more in the documentary zone. So... Well, it's definitely you shifted. Yeah, I mean, there. I think I think what I was after was truth, and I think I've always been after that. And it's like, and I don't think that fashion and commercial world is was honest for me. It may be honest for you or you or whoever, because there's really great art. There's like great art being made within those circles. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a level of fantasy involved. Oh, completely. But there's always, you know, listen, when we take a picture, we're actually abstracting from the world. So, I mean, it's all fantasy. Everything <laughs> is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fan, fan, fantasy. But I mean, well, except for some of the underlying things that you're dealing with, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. listen, uh, there's tradition in my blood in the way that I respect and adore what's what's come before me. And in the canon of, filmmaking and documentary photography. I mean, Danny Line was like one pivotal moment, you know, and that was introduced to me. I mean, Bruce had like Danny Lyon's Conversations of the Dead prints in his loft. <laughs> and I was, you know, I remember looking at those pictures before I even knew who he was. And I was like, what are these guys? Show- they're like showering and they don't have any clothes on. But wait, they're in prison. <laughs> you know. And uh, but to answer that, Nomi, like, like I made a life and a living kind of being an assistant to so many different like names and practitioners and commercial people in the city. And, um, and I always was just like, I always wanted to be involved in the photographic kind of world. So, and since, you know, I had that experience with Bruce, it's like all of a sudden what was weird is that I was like in demand as an assistant because I had acquired all this technical skill mm-hmm. with like knowing you know knowing how to expose film and not only film but chrome and color negative and black and white and all these different analog bodies and lighting and strobes and this and that and even hell like i know how to operate a couple different like mo- motion picture cameras and uh, it was kind of like not that difficult in getting other assisting work 
but you were ready to break out. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was ready to break out. I don't think I was really ready to break out, oh, like as a yeah. photographer, but I was ready to break out as like my own like spirit, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So then I went searching for that for myself. And you know, there's another book that was big in my initial development. It was like Magnum's Degrees uh, anthology book. It's like this tone, mm-hmm. <laughs> orange square Bible of like. And I, I would flip through these pictures, and I was like, I was like, Jesus! Like each picture is like a film still, and I see the whole world, parts of the whole world, and I was just like, dude, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> Like, I'm, like, done with, like, looking at these beautiful people and, and like, with no clothes on. Like, I just want to be in the... Like, what, I mean, that's fun, enough. too. No, I mean, but... I'm just like, what, what's, what's, what's the world really about, yeah. you know? So, I mean, I think... I could, maybe does that kind of answer your question, Nomi? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I remember in class, you were one of... I think you were the one who introduced me to what Magnum Photography yeah. was. Like, because I remember yeah, yeah. you being into it and you talked about it and it was very much what your work, you know, your work is in line. Yeah. That. I mean, you know, those that kind of group or, or archive and history is, you know, I have the biggest respect for that, how those photographers work in the world. And I've learned a lot from that kind of, um, well, how much? I don't want to say like a model, but like. Like, I thought, like, well, I want to go take pictures of the world. I want to know who the fuck I am. And I want to, like, you know, I had a lot of questions. And, and I felt like that was, like, I saw all these people photographing the world and, and, like, making a life out of it. And I was like, but there's such a concentration of amazing, what I thought was, like, powerful work. And I was like, well, wait, there's something going on here. There's a lot to learn from. And then, damn! I mean, Henry Cartier Bresson is in there, and like. <laughs> well, you were uh, you actually got nominated for an Henri Cartier Bresson Award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, that but was. But before we get uh, down the road, yeah. how much time was there in between you striking out on your own and then going to grad school? <sighs> Many years. Okay. Because, so when I left Bruce, it was April two thousand, and then grad school was two thousand nine. Okay, so so you're out shooting then, doing a lot of street photography. Yeah, or? I mean. I bought my Leica while I was at Bruce's, mm-hmm. you know, and it was an M6 TTL, and uh, first lens was a 50, <laughs> and then I felt like that was a little claustrophobic, so I, I got a 35, and then I never looked back. I mean, I just basically, and I still, like, my camera's with me all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe I make less pictures than I used to, but, man, I was just... Yeah, I'm staring at this beautiful black Leica beautiful. right now with worn brass That's edges. That's a beauty. Oh, my God. It's classic. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's funny is the camera becomes like a talking, uh, a conversation piece, you know? It's like... And then people are like, oh, how did you buy that? Now, like, they're, like, making cameras that look like this. I'm like... Yeah, totally. I'm like... Well, like, they, this camera is the patina exists because I actually spent myself like, <laughs> like sweating that patina. Yeah, I mean, there's like right. blood, sweat, and tears in that That's thing, right. and it's the camera's been dropped, unfortunately. Uh. And, you know, I dropped my camera one afternoon after I assisted Norman Jean Roy, and that to me was like, I was like, fuck, hmm. I need to like, like I can't do this anymore. Like Norman Jean Warrior was kind of courting me to be his first assistant and move to LA and do all this stuff. And he was, he was like really cool and I learned a lot from him. But I was so rattled by, with all the responsibilities and the baloney that goes around just like doing that, mm-hmm. that after a job, as I was like packing up, I don't know, like I wasn't thinking clearly and like my camera slipped and it dropped. And I was so f- angry. And for me, it was like an indication that I just, I really just needed to kind of like figure out a way to kind of st- not assist anymore. Not assisting was probably already heavy on your mind, and that was a, a little bit right. of a straw, right? Yeah. On the camel's back, sort right? Of this is, my life is going all wrong right now. Yeah, it's funny because it's like you get paid, you get fed, you work like a mule, you work hard, and, and, and you work around all these personalities and really sometimes absurd situations. But it is really a privilege. I mean, yeah. Right? I mean, some people don't even have work. No, right. I mean, I don't even You're have work right now. Get, but getting, <laughs> but you were getting work and getting work with good people and yeah. And what um when you were out on your own, did were you then also doing commercial work? Were you doing journalism? What were you doing? 
You know, I mean, it's not, I'm not, you know, I wish I was a photojournalist, but mm-hmm. like, I was just taking like... Shooting editorial at all or? When? Be- before grad school, after you yeah, were struck I mean, out there, on there was a How, point, were, you, how there, were you surviving? Yeah, I was mostly <laughs> assisting and at a point right before grad school, I started working with this agency in France called Agence Vu. Okay. And they were like the first ones that started giving me corporate assignments based on... I guess what you would call working them. here or working in France. No, working here, oh, and they, okay. they actually sent me to the West Coast for a job. Mm, nice. But this is all based on like you know, I, I I really really have an issue with like the term street photography. Yes, that, I, that like, would yeah. I was going like, to ask you about I, that. I, I, is I, that I, what you do? Call yourself that? Do you think of yourself as that? You know, I think there's just such a massification of what street photography is now that it's just like I just want to run away from it. Yeah. But I love the street, you know? I mean, I love being outside and I love working on the street and like I but I see myself more as like a personal reportage like artist, you know, like I'm even more at peace with saying that that I'm a documentary artist. Mm. But really, I'm just a personal reporter with a camera. And and it's not saying that, you know, you know, cuz people start saying, "Oh, well, you know, uh, you, you know like navel gazing or something." No. <laughs> it's not necessarily what it's not what's going on here, but I mean, Everything is personal, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do want to get to, you know, what you're doing and, and yeah, your yeah. work and everything. And um, especially this this future City Lab Commission, the Museum of the City of New York. I mean, that that's a, a great achievement. You're, um, Congratulations. You're, Thank you. Yeah, you're in the permanent collection now, the Museum of the City of New York, and they commissioned you to do this, to do your work, basically, yeah. right? Tell us about that. Yeah, I was pretty stoked. I mean, I wish that job never ended, really. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's just like... They hired, commissioned me over a period of six months to visualize a very researched agenda for a show where I started in the beginning of January 2016 in the winter. And literally I had this like Excel spreadsheet (laughs) that listed 20 neighborhoods that I had to go and visit at specific locations to then from that place or that address to then kind of explore and emphasize certain social activities. So within five boroughs, 20 neighborhoods in six months, I got to know, yeah, I got to know New York and understand the city in a way that actually, man, I learned so much in those six months Mm. that it almost like freaked me out to the point to where I was like, wait, wait, how am I going (laughs) to, how am I going to stay here? This place is upside down, like uh, like all these glass buildings going up. Like it, like I really started to understand more of like the economics and social landscape and rezoning and housing and transportation and how people were living and and in engaging how people were living together in certain neighborhoods and and also there was an aspect of like looking at the landscape, nature, and its impacts. Yeah, you um, you talk about photographing at an abandoned gas station, surrounded by these these glass lipstick buildings going up all around. Yeah, right? Michael, you know that that gas station is gone now. Uh, of course it is. <laughs> and now there's like literally a glass, who knows what there. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, yeah, I was that job really made me more of a document, like a real documentary mm-hmm. practitioner, because it's no longer like this kind of personal reaction to things and just like, and this kind of visceral, poetic way I deal with things with my camera, but yet I really had to slow down and read like what was in the background. And it was very much a researched job, but yet I was building off of all these experiences, all, you know, all the different photographers that I worked with, lighting, you know, creating all kinds of different light and producing all kinds of shoots, all that kind of came into play into me being able to kind of like go to these places and sometimes make something out of nothing, you know? One, because you know when to show up when the light's right. Two, because you have to throw yourself at the ledge and like talk to a stranger, but then you have to like, you know, be open to photograph things as they happened and not ask for permission, but yet there's many times that you have to ask for permission. So, you know, that commission really... I drew upon everything that was in my toolbox to kind of make that happen. I mean, the also thing is I made a big leap into color. It was like this. I was they were ask. like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, we want you, but we only want you. But you sure you don't want me to shoot it in black <laughs> and white? And they're like, nope, you got to shoot in color. And I was like, I was, at first I was like, damn, <laughs> what am I going to do here? 
So then, you know, that, that's a hell of a way to start shooting color with yeah. everything mm-hmm. on the line. <laughs> everything was on the line. And the thing it made me do was, it's like I was waking up, like when I have to shoot color for an assignment or shoot color for like a project, like light even gets more important for me because I have to wake up like way before the sun goes up. And I also have to be outside when before the sun goes down into dusk. At least what my taste is, is I love that time of shift of color temperature mm-hmm. and soft to kind of sunset and sun up. That light, you know, that sun up, sun down time is, is, a, is, is a lot for color photography, you know, and... Cape light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Joel also Meyerowitz. kind of... All of it is you really showing what is authentically there and getting into the nitty gritty of all of these neighborhoods in yeah. New York, which it sounds like when you were leaving the assisting commercial world is what you were after. And now you've done it for the Museum of the City of New York, that it doesn't get more authentic than that. Yeah, you, you know, you, you, hit, you, you nailed it on the head there. I mean, it definitely, it's nice that it's like almost you're shaking my tree there. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah this is like, yeah. don't do I it have enough. To, no, I mean, you have yeah. to remind yourself that, you know, as tough as things are, you know, I've, I've worked hard enough and passionate in a, in a way where I've been hungry, obsessed, and passionate in a way that has created these opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, so the Future City Lab's got like 20 Duratrans installed in these tables with a lot of data and iPads. Essentially, they got 100 pictures on show that kind of explore the questions in and around, like, what's the future of the city, you know? Right. The underlying idea of the work you were doing is what's coming up and who's getting left behind, right? Yeah, and then, like, also kind of there was this gaming aspect and animation and digital digitalization of the show where they were, you know, that you could actually interact and kind of play and kind of create what the city may look like, literally, in the exhibit that's in dialogue with my pictures, which is really kind of interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about the city in a way that actually created my sabbatical is what I call it, from the concrete jungle, which was, you know, I I left New York for 16 weeks to teach. In Miami. Yeah, in Miami. Mm -hmm. And there was a, for a moment, I thought, well, maybe I'm not going to come back to New York. Mm. But there's no way. Because of what you saw. (laughs) Well, because of the reverberations of like what I felt. It's almost like I almost felt like I I didn't fit in the New York that I witnessed anymore. Mm -hmm. Like New York, the New York I knew and the New York that I wanted was disappearing and it's on track to completely change in a way where, I mean, who the hell wants to live in these all-inclusive like glass buildings in Long Island City? But I mean, this stuff is going to happen. It's happening everywhere. Oh, it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the city, I've, you know, the city is becoming a, a, like a playground for like really wealthy people. And it's like, is that a bad thing? I don't know. It's well, you know, it pushes people like us, you know, proletariat artists <laughs> kind of further and further on the periphery of these neighborhoods. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm out in South Brooklyn in Ditmas Park, which mm-hmm. it's like the Holy Land out there, you know? It's, Beautiful Victorian mansions. Yeah, I don't yeah. live in one of those wooden right. Right. houses. <laughs> You'd need another, you know, a few hundred grand just to fix up one of those. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, millions actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I live in that area and it's, I love it because it's so not what you expect from Brooklyn. You know, you walk down these like, suburban neighborhoods and then you you have like these beautiful women in in full garb hijabs uh, pushing their their children strollers and you're just like Hmm. wait where am i (laughs) but this is brooklyn yeah you know and it's a beautiful melting pot where i'm at Mm -hmm. this is south brooklyn this is not north like hipster brooklyn yeah is that what you're trying to say (laughs) but i mean there's there's those hipster whatever you want to call i mean that stuff's happening everywhere it's like sure but i feel like where i'm at is like a different there's Mm different there's a different wavelength yeah when when did you decide to go to cuba then well so i've been in and out of i've been going to cuba you know i'm kind of i went to cuba first in 2002 oh okay and i went to cuba i think i went to cuba in 2000 2002 then i went to cuba while i was in grad school from between 2010 2011 and then i was in cuba the beginning of 2017 oh so or six 16. That's a pretty good span in terms of like pre-Obama, post-Obama, you know, op- opening up relations, uh, which I guess you could say started under Bush, right? 
uh, where trade started opening up a little bit. I thought, maybe I'm wrong, but... um, Yeah, I mean, it's very kind of like... Either way. I mean, this is the thing. The Cuba I I experienced on my first trip, there's aspects of, of Cuba that have not changed. And there's aspects of Cuba that have just kind of completely ruptured. Like my last trip there, it was just like people are doing more business. And, and, you know, there's like this, there's a Volsa Negra, which is like the black market where everybody's just hustling and stealing and, and reselling. And But now, the big thing now is, is like almost like in a way parallel to what's going on here with Uber. But over there, if you've got a car, you could drive tourists or you could drive people. And if you were caught charging people a couple of years ago, you can go to jail. Like it, like certain businesses were really governed and monitored, whereas now it's opened up. And the cost of a car now in Cuba is like insane. It's like $30,000 $30, American to buy something that you would equate to like... A Yugo? Or? Yeah, like a Yugo <laughs> that you, would, you wouldn't even trust going on An the highway. An early Hyundai, here. right. Yeah, a Hyundai from... <laughs> Yeah. That, that's maybe worth four or five hundred dollars right. that that would sell for like thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars in Cuba. Listen, Cuba is very complicated. I got family in Cuba that's like in different states of survival. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you, you have know. family that's politically very different, like anti-American or pro-American? Or no, like everybody that? wants to wants the opportunity to get here. Oh, it's just okay. a matter of like creating that opportunity because not everybody's al- you're not allowed to leave. You have to get a visa, you have to like win a lottery, or you have to be summoned out by a family member that requests you out. Mm. So there's, a, there's quite a legal paper trail type of process. Right. It's interesting you talking about Cuba, not all of it, but reminds me of New York kind of, just how some things have completely changed. But New York, there's still that kind of cultural buzz that stays the same, but like everyone wanting to be here, wanting to have that opportunity to come to New York, come to America. I think it's just interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can go back to the Museum Commission because it's like after the Museum Commission and then realizing that we've got this like really pathetic leader as a president or like, you know, whatever you want to call him. (laughs) Well, I was in Cuba. He was being inaugurated. Oh, wow. That must have been an interesting... And it was, like, completely surreal for me because, you know, there's, like, like that cultural collective grief and air of disappointment seeing this guy win the Electoral College and the uncertainty of, like, what is next with this moron. Which we're still experiencing. (laughs) (laughs) We never know what's next. We never know. But yet everybody (laughs) there on the islands, like, they're just, like, dying to do anything to get here. So it's like I'm like experiencing this thing where it's like we really aren't going the right way here and nothing's really worked out down there either. So then you're thinking like what? Where's the middle ground? Because it's not capitalism and it's not total socialism. Where like where are we going? You know, because it just it felt really, really disorientating to see Trump on a TV in Cuba Mm. and knowing that like that dichotomy of like like their dream of getting here to do what? Right. To go, like, work at McDonald's, like, 50 hours a week. To live in one of those lipstick buildings. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which they won't be able to afford. Right. uh, It's just a very, you know, I I just, it's really, we're in a really watershed moment right now where you got to kind of, like, ask yourself, like, what do you stand for? Like, what are you doing? Well, you know? Immigration has been on a steady decline for a good number of years now because... uh, there aren't good jobs. There aren't. Yeah, there's. Um, it, it is not a an enforcement issue. It was, it's an economic issue. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when you go and eat in New York, who do you think's cooking your food? Uh, yeah. Who do you think is who is your uh, who's your super? You know, who are the like? It's all immigrants. I mean, I'm an immigrant. We're all immigrants. So it's like this crazy kind of like perception of like. What, I mean, it's just really um, irrational and um, fear-based, you know, uh, racism and this this idea of, like, whiteness now is just, uh, it's really fucking f- sad. Yeah, it's pretty frightening. You know? Where, um, where on your website would people see the Cuba photographs? So, my Cuba work was called Cuba in Pieces and actually had some early work shown at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston last year. Right. But... In the last couple of weeks. you're in that permanent collection now, right? I well, think. They got like 
Yeah, they got a little something in there, like these early like little maquettes that I sent them of my pictures of my grandmother. Nice. In black and white. Yeah. But anyways, I went through kind of like a re-editing like phase where I have a new kind of title for a project. And it's on my site, and it's called Patria uh, Milagros in Exile, which is kind of me exploring issues of memory, looking at the, the idea of like my fatherland, but through my matriarchs, my mother, my, my, my grandmother, and trying to stitch the wounds of exile and trying to understand like my heritage, you know. But the interesting thing about that work is like, there's no hierarchy as to like, like I'm like, there's black and white, there's color, there's assemblages. And it's kind of like getting really kind of like maybe filmic or kind of, there's a variety of aesthetic, you know, phases. Yeah. It's starting know? to look a little more multidiscipline in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a, it's, I don't want to say a mashup because it's definitely something that it kind of comes together, I feel. And uh, so what's interesting about photography is like if you give yourself deadlines, it's like all of a sudden I feel like if I've got more deadlines, I actually I achieve shit. Like mm. I, I make stuff happen. Like if I know I have to do this by then, there's all of a sudden like the w- w- wheels start spinning like hyper. And all of a sudden I'm like, things are starting to make sense. And like I the reason why I, I like I was photographing my mom and I was just like, what am I? And then my Cuba work and I was like, some stuff started feeling like it was dialoguing but they were separate and then all of a sudden i just pulled it all back together hmm. like i mashed up cuban pieces and my recent you know like frames of that take place in miami of me kind of trying to re-relate to my mom and get close to her because i that's another thing it's like since i've been in new york she feels like i've <laughs> kind of abandoned her like at least me and my brother and uh so it was kind of nice also on that respect to go back to Miami. But so this new your, edit. Your brother in New York? Yeah, he's actually yeah. on, uh, not far from here. Oh, okay. 24th between 2nd and 3rd. And um, so, yeah, the Cuba work is like sprinkled into the work of my my mother and my grandmother and some family in Cuba. And I'm tracking time in different ways where I'm taking pictures that were made of me with my cousins with pictures and recent portraits of my cousins then and now and kind of looking at that like a time element Hmm. did your father pass away no well it's as if my father passed away but he's still alive and uh that's something that i still have to work through Mm -hmm. i just he's not he's not with your mother or no he left when um many years ago Mm -hmm. and uh yeah that's all kind of like when you go to Cuba, do you see his family? No, I see my mother's family. Oh, okay. So it's my grandmother and, you know, there's a picture I made that I really like of Rodolfo, who was actually in prison with my uncle, who's married to my mom's middle sister, Camisita. And um, I was also in prison with my, my grandfather. And the story goes is that so my family, my grandfather was like a watchmaker and he, he was in the army. And I think he also like operated on the telegraph. Like he was like, did, worked on a telegraph or kind of like communicated on with Morse code and stuff. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he was so. That sound you heard was uh, yeah, <laughs> Joseph yeah. mimicking the yeah, telegraph. And, but so, oh yeah. And he was also a barber. So he did a couple different things and, um. But he also was teaching people in the community, the neighborhood, how to arm themselves between my grandfather and his neighbor, who ended up being also part of the family because he ended up marrying my mother's eldest aunt, my Lourdes, which is my mom's, the most adult sister. So between Miguel, my grandfather, and, and they were kind of like intertwined with a church. They were doing, they had a business where they were teaching people how to like fucking fire guns <laughs> like because there's all these like little uprisings supposedly before Go- Castro finally oh, came okay. through and there was all these kind of like civil like unrest and small little wars between different provinces right. so there was always like this fear that someone was going to come into town and take over another coup yeah. yeah so people back then was just like all right well, well, you know you get armed and you learn how to use these fucking weapons and I'm not sure if the story is like totally accurate, but 
it's a part of that narrative that's been kind of suppressed and hidden. Because there's always a, that element of my mother and my grandfather and the family where there was like a lot not said, but then there seemed to be a lot like understood without any kind of like real... It was all, it's all undertones and yeah, between yeah. the lines. It's like projected and, yeah. and kind of like understood that you didn't kind of like ask, but that there was understood that you didn't say certain things. Well, you, you can you can imagine growing up in a, in a somewhat more oppressive society, developing that language, right? Developing that way of communicating. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny, man, the way I wrap it all up and it makes sense. It's like my photography in a way, my relationship to the camera is all about like freedom and that that possibility of expressing myself, which is tied into like this transference of of being oppressed and, and being scared of like standing up for like what you thought was right and, you know, just saying what you felt, mm-hmm. which is not what you do in Cuba. Yeah. You have to right. like, you have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Even also to not wanting to talk about things that are scary and hard. Like it's already happened. Why do we need to talk about it anymore? Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was in Cuba, I made this picture because I, I you know, I'm going to tell you the story. I don't know if you want to hear it, but like, it's <laughs> like, it. it relates to this whole kind of like... Speak for yourself, Nomi. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Fine. I want to hear it. He's telling it anyway. <laughs> so in Cuba, it's like illegal for you to consume like red meat, like from a cow. The, the actual state owns, governs the, the farming and uh, like cows are counted, accounted for. So there's, that's why there's like, like everything you eat in Cuba is like pig, Mm. like rice and beans and some part of the pig. Like you eat a hamburger, it's going to be like a a pork burger. Mm. You eat a steak, you're having a pork steak. Anyway, so my last trip, they call la vacas de oro, which is the, you know, like this idea of like the cow being gold. I saw this one cow like chained to a palm tree and I thought it was like super absurd. I was like, what? And it's such a symbol of like certain aspects of the, of what it's, what it means to be Cuban that really people don't explore or don't even understand unless you like you have family there and you understand how hard it is when there's like no food and there's no eggs and you're like hustling from this province or that province for certain like ingredients or like anything. It's like, it's like really ridiculous. Inventory gets low on like really basic stuff. But anyways... I wanted to photograph this cow, and I thought, well, I'm going to go up to this hill. Because this hill gives me a vantage, and kind of got, I've got this overview. And I was, like, pre-visualizing this, like, landscape of this, like, lonely cow from up above. And I felt like, oh, maybe, you know, I'll go up there and see if... A little Ferdinand the Bull on the yeah. hill. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I go up this path that's off the highway outside, like, Kohima. And I'm going to tell you exactly what part of Kohima. Kohima. And, um because it's another town. So it's kind of like this really kind of like grassy, uh, dense area. I mean, you just not kind of don't walk there. You just, I mean, but my curiosity led me up this hill. And when I got up this hill, I see, boom, it's like five or six guys totally naked with their heads wrapped in t-shirts. They almost look like gorillas with hard-ons. Hmm. And they were, compl- it was like a tableau of men having sex in this, like, landscape. With the cow or each other? No, not with the okay. cow. The cow was <laughs> like, no, no, <laughs> no, with each other. But it was like, <laughs> I got up to this hill to yeah. photograph a cow. Right. And what I happen upon is, like, this other kind orgy. of, like, like orgy in this jungle-like mm-hmm. setting. And it all goes back to this idea of, like, freedom. Here you have, when I speculate, these, these gay men having sex. And who knows what the narrative is? But like, they're obviously don't feel comfortable maybe being themselves right. in the city. So then they have to go, you know, it could have been a cruising ground for all I know. But since I'm not a participant or uh, mm-hmm. not a part, like, I don't know what's going on. It's just my visual. You were, you were looking right. for and, a cow. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> yeah. was like looking you for. You just a, wanted a view. A point of, <laughs> and you didn't realize what view you were. Right. <laughs> and, and point I, of view. I walked into this, Nomi, and I walked into this and I was just like, my jaw dropped. And by the time I processed the scene, the men have di- had dispersed, and I got three frames. I made one picture. Had they seen you? Oh, they 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 saw that someone arrived. Okay. Who was not, not part not, of the not crew? Naked. <laughs> not naked. Yeah. And I, they were totally scared. I would imagine, and they just took off. And I was so shocked, not knowing what the hell ha- that it took me a little bit to kind of 
say, oh, wait, I got to take a picture of this. Like, I so I got three frames. I got one frame that is evidence of like the story. Mm-hmm. But again, and it's my logic of like this personal like process of like saying, here I am in Cuba experiencing how people are like living their truth, but yet hidden because it's not like, you know, to be gay, openly gay in certain parts of Cuba isn't necessarily... I would think it's illegal or, well, I don't or know. at least, at least you'd be outcast, right? Yeah, there's different tolerances. It just depends on where you're at. Oh, okay. Right? I don't know if it's completely illegal. I mean, mm-hmm. if, but I had kind of a Ronaldo Arenas kind of like experience. Not that I was like looking for sex or looking for a cruising ground, but I just, just happened upon it. And that, that does bring up a little, another ethical question. Would you sh- ever show that photo? Oh, it's on my website. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like their faces were covered with shirt, right? You, yeah, There's yeah. nothing identifiable. There's, oh, okay. I mean, you can look it? at the picture, and actually the picture has to be like... That's what I was asking before. Where are these Cuba pictures? Yeah, they're under Patria. The, it's like the last portfolio in my in my and Under website. project portfolios? Yeah, project oh, portfolios. Oh, okay. So we, um, we're going to have to wrap up soon because I think there is a class... Uh, coming into this room that we're recording in at the School of Visual Arts. Did, did you want to mention, I, I know you, um, you've started a, a new project, which is you talk about as being even a little strange for a man to, to talk about, the, the project called Birthright. Yeah. Did you want to uh, just talk a little bit about that project? Because I, I know it's, in, it's probably in its very early stages, right? Yeah, well, it's on my website, too. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, I mean, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade was just a couple days ago, January 22nd. And that work is kind of like, it, it's drawn from a personal kind of experience of, of uh, with Kim and I, and she had an abortion early on, and that had kind of a huge kind of um, positive impact on me, as, as hard as it was for both of us to kind of, you know, come to terms with, like, understanding we weren't ready to be parents. And, but that brought in, a, like, a new window into looking at, like, issues of power, you know, and just kind of like really looking at the father figure and patriarchy, metaphorically and systemically, and and you know powers between state, you know powers between uh, body and state and religion. So birthright kind of is about. I mean, it's kind of like a third rail project. You know what a third rail is? <laughs> yes, yeah. It's just it's kind of touching like, the electric rail, right? Like killing no one, yourself. Like no one yes. really wants to. Like it's like really timely. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons why. I mean, the sad thing is, is like, I made the work in a way to kind of try to understand, like, and take more accountability as a man. And in that process, I've changed. Mm-hmm. But, man, I've, I've had so much, like, pushback on the work. Well, yeah. Because I started in 2006. And, I mean, these conversations were less, like, the norm, mm-hmm. you know. And... uh yeah. yeah so you, well, you put yourself in a, a sort of tough position of being a man and, and talking about issues of abortion and, and uh, pro-choice, pro-life issues. And yeah, <laughs> issues. I mean, the whole thing for me was like I, I wanted to kind of understand why women, why they didn't have the, like, why is it that their circumstance, they can't own their own choice, mm-hmm. you know? Why does this man or why does this politician have to, like, put himself between her decision, her body— and just be like this kind of judge penitent. Like, like what is this? But just to talk about the structure of it, it's called Birthright, W-R-I-T-E, because it's actually uh, a combination of writings and testimonials accompanying totally. photos, right? Totally. So it's a yeah. collaborative thing where I would like introduce myself to a stranger and start a conversation and, and build trust with the objective of like having a conversation about reproductive justice and wanting to kind of hear stories and understand what it's like to be in a woman's body. It's also, it's also putting yourself on the line, kind of, you know, the woman is the one who's going to have to go through the procedure. She's the one that gets pregnant. She has to go through the procedure. And you're talking about the pushback you've been getting. And this is kind of you putting yourself on the line and yeah. you, in a way that men don't have to, because they're not the ones who have to are experiencing it. I, I actually think men have to put themselves more on the line and, and actually have to kind uh, of... Well, I mean, not... I so know. here's, here's <laughs> the tricky part. The tricky, the tricky just, part is... It, and I, I can see the subtlety in what you're trying to say, yeah. Joseph, in that men need more responsibility in the process 
that doesn't mean they need more decision making in the process. No, of right. course. They just need to take more accountability and like Right. And, right. and, and, and they need to take No, I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no I mean, want to put it out there. This is that why it's I, tricky. I'm not saying yeah. that I need to get in your way, but what I'm saying is I need to listen to you and 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 support I, I, I just and don't just think have enough conversation. Men, right. I don't think enough men listen. And you know what? I don't think enough men know how to say sorry. And I don't think enough men know how to yield, you know? And if, if, if more men can kind of work, live in that vulnerable place where there's, there's just more empathy and more respect, we'd have a more peaceful, equitable landscape, right? So, I mean, my intention with that project has been to kind of to comb through that really loaded, like, binary. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the project is, is looking at the histories of Roe v. Wade, and it's uh, a social document that came from a cathartic documentary exploration of like looking at myself in the mirror and then jumping outside the mirror and going into the collective to ask questions to you know refigure what my my what my relationship was to the world as a man you know and um and I'm still learning you know well that's a a good place to end I'm yeah. still learning <laughs> that's awesome thank you yeah thank Thanks. you thank you for uh, coming in uh, where are you heading after this um I am heading <laughs> out to the very cold streets of New York with my camera. With your beautiful Leica. Your beautiful Leica. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Know me. I really. It was really awesome. Yeah. Oh, great! Thank and you. I'm really grateful that we made a nice kind of dialogue here. And I oh, wish, totally. I wish this happened more often. This is what. Like, I mean, this, this is the point that, of the show. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like not necessarily that we have to record our conversations right, right. But, okay, get together. But, but but like talk about stuff you <laughs> have know? a conversation yeah. about our work and just get because totally. when you're in it it's so hard to see you need that distance yeah exactly absolutely yeah thanks guys happy right. new year oh happy yeah happy new year happy new year and uh bye oh, yeah, I was gonna say oh, one go can i say one more go, thing go, go, go. do it i am teaching uh this class oh, with yes. penumbra yes called yes. city lab jeffrey berlina penumbra foundation yeah yeah if you guys don't know about penumbra it's an awesome, like... Well, uh, we, we recorded with them, so you yeah, go yeah. and listen to that episode. Yeah, yeah Jeffrey Berliner and Leandro Velado, Argentinian um, artist and writer and photographer, great guy. And I'm just happy to be continuing my collaboration with them because I started a workshop series last year in October called New York Now. And now I'm doing this 10-week Monday night class called City Lab where you get to spend three hours every Monday night from... February 19th, I think April 23rd. And the objective of the class is for us to kind of work together and build a body of work with a with intention about right. the city. So if you're interested, you could, uh, there's a link in my bio and Instagram. So when is that exactly? February 19th. Okay, so this episode might not air by then, but we will announce right. it ahead of other episodes. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. All right. All Thank right. you, Nomi. Thanks. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.